following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally aired October 1st, 2021. Does the new revolution in space travel brought forward by Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and Jeff Bezos lead to enhancing the militarization of space? How do the thousands of satellites enhancing the 5G networking system play a role in enhancing military supremacy? Who are the technocrats and how do 5G advancements dramatically boost their ability to control the people? Is the earth headed for a new form of technological fascism against which revolution will be impossible? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we will examine the new frontiers of our technological sophistication and witness the hazards of machines that ultimately do not liberate us from drudgery so much as put us under the thumb of a new brand of elites. In our first half hour, Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space returns to share his concerns on the eve of Keep Space for Peace Week. In our second half hour, we're joined by Patrick Wood, Editor-in-Chief of Technology, News and Trends, explain his examination of technocrats, 5G, and their potential to truly dominate the globe for a tiny minority of the opulent. On this week's program, breakthroughs in spacecraft, 5G and AI, pathways toward a digital dictatorship. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 1st, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of Nahiwak in the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping the world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The article references an internal CDC slide presentation which summarizes preliminary data that the agency had in its possession, but which it refuses to honestly share with the American public. According to the Washington Post writers, this CDC document, quote, cites a combination of recently obtained still unpublished data from outbreak investigations and outside studies showing that vaccinated individuals infected with Delta may be able to transmit the virus as easily as those who are unvaccinated, unquote, emphasis added. In other words, as far as the transmission of the prevalent Delta variant is concerned, it does not matter whether one is vaccinated or not. According to CDC analysis, both groups appear to become infected and infect others at the same rate. That comes from the article, Lying Through Their Teeth, Health Officials Know Vaccines Don't Stop Transmission But Talk About a Pandemic of the Unvaccinated, by Vasco Colmeyer, posted September 29th, originally published in LouRockwell.com. 
The unspoken truth is that the virus provides a pretext and a justification to powerful financial interests and corrupt politicians to precipitate the entire world into a spiral of mass unemployment, bankruptcy, extreme poverty, and despair. More than 7 billion people worldwide are directly or indirectly affected by the COVID crisis. The fear campaign prevails, and people are now led to believe that Big Pharma's mRNA vaccine is solution, and that normality will be restored once the entire population of the planet has been vaccinated. That comes from the introduction under the headline video, The 2021 Worldwide COVID Crisis, Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted September 29th. <music> Student at the Lycée Valabre de Luine Gardenum is en Provence, Sophia Benharira, passed away on September 21st, seven days after having received the deadly Pfizer vaccine. This is happening all over the world. Children and adolescents are dying. Either the media fails to report vaccine-related deaths or it states with authority that the deaths are attributable to COVID-19. Crimes against humanity, crimes against our children. That comes from the introduction under the headline video. Sophia Benharira, 16 years old, dies following Pfizer vaccine. Two heart attacks, thrombosis. May she rest in peace. By Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted September 28th, originally sourced from Pierre at Rakia. Dr. Long focused on a now widely recognized health impact of current COVID vaccines, saying, quote, Vaccination with mRNA increases the risk of myocarditis, unquote. Quote, research shows that most individuals with myocarditis do not have any symptoms. Complications of myocarditis include dilated cardiomyopathy, arrhythmias, sudden cardiac death, and carries a mortality rate of 20% at one year and 50% at five years. According to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, U.S. National Library of Medicine, quote, despite optimal medical management, overall mortality has not changed in the last 30 years, unquote. Quote, we must establish a screening program to identify those at increased risk of myocarditis, i.e. those that have received mRNA vaccinations with Pfizer or Moderna, or have any of the following symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, or palpitations, unquote. That comes from the article, U.S. Army Physician Warns About Toxic Ingredients in COVID Shots, by Joel S. Hirschhorn, posted September 29th, originally published at LifeSite News. A House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on September 21st set out plans for the next phase of the United States hybrid warfare on Nicaragua, which aims to destabilize and ultimately overthrow the Central American nation's leftist Standinista government. The event featured hardline neoconservative members of Congress, a senior State Department official, a prominent 
Nicaraguan regime change activist and the former president of Costa Rica. The carefully staged spectacle made it clear that Washington will be expanding its brutal economic war on Nicaragua as the country's general elections approach in November. This will take the form of more aggressive financial sanctions through legislation called the Renacer Act. These sanctions could potentially expand into a de facto blockade modeled after the U.S. embargo of Venezuela. That comes from the article, U.S. Congress outlines new phase of economic attacks and hybrid war on Nicaragua's Sandinista government by Ben Norton, posted September 29th, originally published on The Grey Zone. If Sweden and Belarus were able to outperform other nations by simply doing nothing, what exactly have all of these public health expert interventions accomplished? The experts told us that their approach would certainly result in human catastrophe with bodies lining every city block, yet the opposite is true. Life has moved on from COVID in these nations where the illness is being treated comparable to seasonal influenza. Moreover, there appears to be declining confidence that the latest promised cure to the disease, mRNA injections, are acting as a cure in any way, shape, or form. That comes from the article, Freedom Prevails, COVID Data Shows Public Health Mandates Only Harm People, by Jordan Schachtel, posted September 29th, originally published in The Dossier. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour. When it comes to the exploitation of outer space, there have been numerous changes in recent years, deploying thousands of satellites largely to enable the 5G networks. Billionaires now have established a gold rush, a new wild frontier in, in civilians experiencing high-altitude flights and, and weightlessness. Uh, there's word of mining contracts on the moon and asteroids, more exploration of Mars. Bruce Gagnon fears most of all that all of these developments will contribute to militarizing and weaponizing space. His group has been mobilizing against such militarization since 1992, and now the demand is, is greater than ever. Just to bring listeners up to speed, Bruce Gagnon is the uh, coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. He was a co-founder of the Global Network when it was created in 1992, and he's spoken in numerous countries around the world. His published articles have appeared in Asia Times, Le Monde Diplomatique, Albuquerque Journal, Sekei Journal in Japan, and Counterpunch, among others. His blog, Organizing Notes, appears on the site spaceforpeace.org. He's produced documentaries, including the 2003 film Arsenal of Hypocrisy, spelling out U.S. plans for space domination. He also hosts a public access TV show called This Issue that currently runs in 17 Maine communities. Bruce Gagnon joins us now from Bath, Maine. 
It's good to have you back, Bruce. Uh, thank you for participating. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. Now, has the, the militarization of space that, that we've seen expand recently, do, is it due to some part, move on the part of a president, like, say, President Trump announcing the creation of the military deployment Space Force? Or is this just the latest in a long history, uh, a long process of space militarization going back uh, to, to SDI? Uh, what do you think? Well, I think it's uh, a little of both. It's a steady progression of increased funding since the Reagan administration in the early 80s, uh, a maturing, if I can use that word, of the technology, and also a calculated plan. I, I would uh, remind the listeners that in 1997, the U.S. Space Command published a document called Vision for 2020. And in that document, uh, the U.S. Space Command said that uh, the Pentagon would control space, dominate space, and deny other nations access to space, that we would essentially be the master of space, something that is above the doorway at the Air Force Space Command headquarters in Colorado. And so, as it turns out, in the year 2020, uh, following the vision for 2020, uh, Donald Trump brought to the Congress a proposal to create the U.S. Space Force, a dedicated military branch uh, to do all the things that were outlined in that vision for 2020 document, and it passed. Uh, remember that the Democrats control the House of Representatives now and in 2020 when Trump was in office. They could have stopped Space Force dead in the tracks, but they didn't. The only thing they asked for was to call it the Space Corps, like the Marine Corps. That was it. And they didn't really even fight for that. So uh, it's clear to us that this is a long time bipartisan program funded uh, by both parties. And at the same time, since 1984, Russia and China have annually gone to the United Nations asking to negotiate a global ban on weapons in space, what we call PAROS, P-A-R-O-S, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space. And all during those years, no matter whether it was a Republican or a Democratic uh, president, it was always rejected. And at the UN, the United States and Israel worked together to block any serious negotiations for such a treaty. Now, well, in, in recent, uh, recently, we hear about the billionaire gold rush, you know, the uh, Branson, Bezos, and, and Musk, they're making space flights suddenly available to anyone who can afford it. I mean, I'd certainly go for a trip like that myself, but it seems like excessive splurging. I mean, also, also these suddenly accessible flights are extremely hazardous to the environment, but it isn't immediately obvious how it benefits space militarization. Could you run down a little a bit about the relationship between the billionaire boons and the bomber boobs? <laughs> well, it's, I think, a really important question. Uh, at this present time, uh, SpaceX, which is Elon Musk, and Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos, are getting huge contracts from the Pentagon 
to build military, build and launch uh, military rockets, military uh, satellites in space. And so it's very clear that these guys are being used to make sort of a fun rodeo kind of westward expansion story. You know, the American heroes, explorers are going out west, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And but it, but really, it's a disguise to uh, protect the image of this very aggressive U.S. military operation. They're putting in layers and layers and layers of satellites orbiting the earth so that if there is a war and there's a shooting war and satellites are disabled, that they will have more satellites that they believe they can rely on to fight that war because everything you do now in the military is directed by space technology. No matter whether you're a troop on the ground and a tank or a, any other kind of vehicle, you're in the ocean in a ship, or you're on a plane in the Air Force, everything you do is coordinated and directed by space technology. And so the Pentagon, when they talk about they've got to control and dominate space and deny other countries access to space, that's what they're working to build that technology, that architecture, that infrastructure to make it happen. And in order to launch tens of thousands of satellites, they're talking about launching up to 80,000 satellites with 5G capability. Uh, and we're told, well, this is exciting. It's gonna speed up our inter internet, uh, kind of like the way we were told GPS was gonna be great, you know, uh, but it was really a military application. And it's the same with 5G. 5G is gonna allow for greater military surveillance, faster targeting and attack capability. So uh, this we've got to really be aware of that. But as you're launching 80 some thousand satellites into space, guess what? You need more spaceports. And so suddenly there's a rash of proposals at all these different places in the United States and all over the world to build spaceports. Just to give you two examples, <clears throat> Kodiak Island, Alaska where uh, bears and salmon are uh, famous. Uh, some years ago, a spaceport was built there against the wishes of the local community in a uh, public uh, nature area, a nature preserve. And uh, they, the people were told that it would only be for civilian launches. Well, since that time, there's been about uh, 90, more than 90% of the launches have been <clears throat> US military uh, uh, launches, testing weapon systems, uh, missile defense in particular. And also Israel has tested their Iron Dome system uh, that's in the news lately. Uh, they've tested that from Kodiak Island as well. And then there's a place in New Zealand called Rocket Lab, uh, built in the indigenous part of New Zealand, where the indigenous people come from, they were told, don't worry, this is not going to be military, it's all going to be civilian. Well, today, they're launching military uh, rockets, military missions, and 
uh, Lock, uh, Lockheed Martin has taken over control of Rocket Lab. They're now the basic owner of it and they're directing the operation. So I'm, I'm raising this question. When you have all these spaceports, and we're talking about Scotland, we're talking about Michigan and Georgia in the United States and Virginia, in addition to Florida and California already, uh, we're talking about Papua, New Guinea, we're talking about uh, Brazil, you know, there's just, there, the world is littered with these things now, and increasingly so. Uh, is it possible that they could also be used at some point in a first strike attack? Because we know that everything the Pentagon is doing today is setting up the the infrastructure to be able to deliver a first strike attack against Russia and China. They war game it every year. Uh, they do a computer war game where they launch such a first strike attack. So we know they're working on it. They're planning for it. They're war gaming it. Uh, is it possible that this string of spaceports around the world after these satellites are all launched could also be used to fire offensive rockets with either conventional and or nuclear warheads on board at Russia and China as part of a first strike attack in order to just literally overwhelm them, coming at them from a million different directions, right? And so I'm really worried about that. So these are the kind of things that we're seeing today. And then finally, to the point about the gold rush, in 2015, Obama signed a law giving U.S. rich cat, fat cats and corporations the uh, right to go out and mine the sky, which violates the United Nations Outer Space Treaty of 1967 and the Moon Treaty that say no country, no corporation, no individual can make land claims on the planetary bodies. They're the province of all humankind. You called, I was called the, the, the Spurring Private Aerospace Competitiveness and Entrepreneurship Act, right? Space? That's right. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I want you to just maybe go back a, a little bit because you mentioned the fact that the, the 5G system, it's, it's presented to us as civilian. I mean, faster downloads, uh, driving, self-driving cars, uh, surgery being conducted remotely and, and so forth. But you insisted that there's a very important military dimension. Maybe even it's a, the dominant aspect of this. I mean, could I just ask you to just expand a little bit on on what, how that uh, is in fact the dominant or, or a significant portion of the, the the spending and this whole network put in place? Well, for the past year or so, we've been seeing multiple articles and references by the military to. Uh, 5G, and uh, where they express great excitement uh, about it, great anticipation uh, that they're going to have all new uh, whole world of capabilities uh, to, again, uh, see the world, surveillance, right? Uh, identify targets. I mean, already we see how drones are used and uh, to spy and to identify targets and then fire missiles and to kill people uh, like happened at, in Afghanistan near the airport very recently. Uh, but then it was later discovered that it was a car full of uh, children and uh, a man that was working for NGOs uh, doing aid for uh, people struggling because of the war. So uh, 
there's already this incredible capability that the Pentagon has via satellite technology, but now they're talking about it being even better because of 5G. And, uh, and we know that 5G also has severe implications for human health and also uh, animal life on this planet, particularly bees and bugs, uh, little small insects that are crucial to our survival on this planet, because uh, in our neighborhoods, in order to share the 5G signals, uh, they're going to have to put an, an enormous amount of 5G towers, uh, 5G uh, devices to receive the signal from space and then pass it on to our individual homes. And uh, they're going to have to be many of them because they need to be close to us in order to relay this signal. And so this means that our bodies, which are majority water, are going to be exposed to these radio waves that are going to heat our bodies up and cause all kinds of, of uh, physical problems for us and also mental problems, our minds, I imagine, are, are, are going to be uh, deeply affected. So there's growing understanding around the world and growing opposition to 5G. But we're trying to get people to see the military connection that goes along with this as well. And then uh, like one aspect as well is the, the amount of space debris that's being left in the wake of these missions, because, I mean, they're they're just piling them on now. And uh, it's building up in the orbits. And, and how, I mean, how big a problem is this going to be in, in, in the next little while? Well, we know that space debris, space junk is already a really big problem. They have to track it. Uh, recently, uh, they had to move the International Space Station to another orbit because they were tracking space debris that was coming dangerously close. Many scientists have long been predicting that the Kessler syndrome was definitely going to happen. Kessler syndrome means that at some point you're going to have so much space debris up there that it's going to just start cascading crashes. Uh, and there's, there'll be all these uh, cascading crashes where as each crash happens, one satellite gets hit by some debris, it breaks apart, that creates more debris, that hits more satellites. And before long, you've got a massive problem on your hands. In 1989, I think it was, we organized, I was then working for the Florida Coalition for Peace and Justice. Work, part of our work was around the space, militarization of space. And we had a protest at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And our speaker that day was Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell, one of the early moonwalkers. And he talked about this problem with space debris. He said, if we ever have one war in space, it'll be the one and only because we'll create so much space debris that we'll, we'll have a minefield, or he called it a piranha-laced river encircling the earth, and we won't be able to get a rocket through it will be entombed to the planet forever. So when you have this problem of this cascading crashes in space, guess what? Everything on the earth goes dark. Why? Because we're so reliant on space technology for everything, right? ATM machines, cell phones, internet banking, cable TV, traffic signals, 
uh, weather prediction, airport, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, you know, control towers, you know, you name it. Everything is now hooked up to the satellites. And so if you have them knocked out, whether it's just from the Kessler syndrome, from accidental crashes, or from a war in space, we're back to, literally to the Stone Age here, back down on the planet. And uh, people need to think about that. They need to really begin to speak out about the dangers that we have uh, in space. So that's uh, during Keep Space for Peace Week, October 2nd through 9th. We urge people to check out our website, spaceforpeace.org. And uh, when you go there, go to our resource section and look at our videos. We, every month we make a, a short video about a different aspect of this problem of the militarization, weaponization of space, and now the commercialization of space. So take a look at those and help us spread the word during Keep Space for Peace Week. Okay. Bruce, I, I want to thank you uh, for, for appearing on the program. It's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you and, and best wishes for the upcoming week. Thank you very much, Michael. It's good to be with you. We've been speaking with Bruce Gagnon. He is the coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Innovations in scientific technology often compels us to keep up with our neighbors and all the perks they can enjoy. Unfortunately, my next guest has concerns about how the high-tech wizardry, including the 5G networks, is also leading to a new form of governance that will leave us all without freedom. Patrick Wood is a leading and critical expert on sustainable development, the green economy, Agenda 21, 2030 Agenda, and historic technocracy. He's the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation in uh, 2015, and co-author of Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2, with the late Anthony C. Sutton. And Wood remains a leading expert on the elitist Trilateral Commission, their policies and achievements in creating their support proclaimed, <clears throat> excuse me, in creating their self-proclaimed new international economic order, which is the essence of sustainable development on a global scale. His current research <clears throat> helps us to connect the links between technocracy, transhumanism, scientism under the Trilateral Commission hegemony, together with global economics, politics, and religion. The Global Research News Hour first heard of him in his presentations against 5G, so we uh, had to bring him to the show this week. Patrick Wood, thank you for making the time to have this conversation with our listenership. It's my pleasure to do so. I'm really, uh, really looking forward to this. Patrick Wood, what exactly do you mean by the term technocracy? 
Well, historic technocracy, which was invented back in the 1930s, primarily by engineers and scientists at Columbia University in New York City, um, they proposed, these engineers and scientists proposed a new economic system that would replace capitalism and free enterprise. And at the heat of the Great Depression, they, they thought that capitalism was dead. And so they created this resource-based economic system where all production and all consumption would be monitored, controlled by the so-called scientific method and um, uh, their view of the scientific method. And uh, they saw this as the as kind of a utopian system as well. Um, so it didn't catch on really back then. It was kind of rejected by the middle of the 1940s. Um, but it made a roaring comeback uh, in the early 1970s, especially. And we're struggling with it today all over the world, these concepts of a resource-based economic system. And of course, this is the heartbeat of sustainable development, which we see coming from the United Nations. Um, it's warmed over technocracy from the 1930s. Um, so they called it back then the science of social engineering. They were engineers, right? They could they understood engineering, this, but they kind of coined the concept of the science of social engineering, where the application of science and technology to society would control and direct the, the stream of society and control the people in it. Wow. Um, what were some of the leading figures in this movement? I mean, any famous faces that uh, were, you know, particularly high in the uh, the this the, the leading uh, edge of technocracy? Well, th there actually were back in even back in the 1930s, the co-founder of the Technocracy Incorporated movement in North America, which was quite popular. They had over 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members uh, for some years, uh, was M. King Hubbard. Now, Hubbard, uh, and, and I say co-founder of the Technocracy Inc. movement, uh, M. King Hubbard became the, uh, the geologist, actually quite brilliant, but maybe just a little bit misdirected. He's the guy who created peak oil theory in 1954 when he was working for a big oil company at the time. But um, he was instrumental in, in kind of packaging up the whole techno technocracy um, ideology, if you will, system. He was the main author of the technocracy study course, for instance, in 1934. So just 20 years later, he was created, you know, he was involved in, in or he actually was a singular creator of the peak oil theory which has uh, put him in a, in a position to kind of be one of the founding fathers of the modern eco movement, and especially the anti-oil, you know, anti-big, anti-fossil fuel movement. They look back to M. King Hubbard as one of their uh, ideological superheroes. <laughs> and, and coming in more recently, you mentioned the 1970s. I mean, was, were there significant figures in there as well? Helping to kind of absolutely, bring it back. I, I would I would credit Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, as being the carry forward guy. He he received the baton, so to speak. I think uh, he was a professor at Columbia University, by the way, in political science, 
Um, at the time he wrote uh, his early book, which was called uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, what do I say? It was Between Two Ages was the first title. Between Two Ages. The subtitle was America's Role in the Technotronic Era. America's Role in the Technotronic Era. When I discovered technocracy um, about 12, 13 years ago, I went, went back to his book because I had studied that earlier in the 70s and 80s, and I had to go back to it and say, could, could he have meant technocratic when he said technotronic? <laughs> you know, was that a synonym that, uh, you know, he's using? And in fact, it was. That's exactly what I found. He saw and for he didn't predict, but he's a he was really um, a brilliant political scientist, analyst, whatever. I'll give him that. I um, he wrote a number of books and he was a foreign policy advisor for decades. Uh, he passed just a few years ago. But um, Brzezinski put it this way. He said the end get the end game is the technotronic era that somewhere out there in the future was the technotronic era. That's what he was looking forward to when he wrote the book to frame America's role in the technotronic era. But he said between two ages. And so the way he described that in his book, we had the age of, um, uh, oh, for instance, uh, you know, back before maybe 1900, we had the age of uh, biblical literacy, for instance. That was kind of the, the driver of society back then. Then we had the industrial age that came in, and we had uh, ideologies like Marxism and socialism, communism, and so on, come in to, to, the, uh, to, to the human experience. And then you, he said, at the end of that, you're going to have the, the technotronic era. He made a point to say that, that Marxism essentially was a stepping stone to get to that age. And he called it a necessary stepping stone to get to that age. Brzezinski was not a Marxist, however. He was not a communist either. He, had, he actually sparred with, with Russia repeatedly, um, considering them you know, the, the enemy, so to speak. So it's an interesting, uh, it was an interesting intellectual view of how the world was put together and where society was going. And this was the book, by the way, that caught the eye of, of the money man, David Rockefeller, and caused him to invite Brzezinski to co-found the Trilateral Commission in 1973, and they did. And uh, the, the rest of that, now we can look back in history and see what they did as an organization. But it was Brzezinski who was the brains behind that. And I, I credit the Trilateral Commission as being the founder of modern globalization. And when I say modern, I just take the period from 1970 through today. They were the ones that started this movement towards the technotronic era. And it, was, it became, I believe, a self-fulfilling prophecy after a while where they had the means because of the Rockefeller and his crowd, they had the means to actually manipulate society towards that technotronic era. And here we are today. We'll talk about some of those things. You know, uh, Patrick, would, we're hearing a lot about 5G 
Okay, this new generation of wireless, it's gotten major attention, though critical attention is not as significant as, say, I don't know, climate change or poverty or so on. Um, first of all, how does 5G advance the designs of the technocrats? Well, of course, back in the back in the 1930s, nobody knew 5G was coming. Right? There was no no specific intent there. But having said that, today, uh, as wireless data has grown in speed and complexity and function, we had 2G, 3G, 4G, LTE, and now we have 5G and 6G's on the way. By the way. Um, this became the connector of the so-called Internet of Things. Now it's kind of known as the Internet of Everything because it includes people, too, and people are being tracked with their cell phones and so on. But you have sensors throughout society, sensors in buildings, sensors on streets, sensors in police cars, um, uh, sensors and cameras and facial recognition, stuff like that. Um, scientists and engineers look to society as being a machine, uh, like in a factory. And in order to control the machine, you must monitor what's going on in the machine. So if it gets low on oil, for instance, you want a technician to go out, and pour another can of oil into the machine before it freezes up and breaks. Well, this is the engineering mentality applied to society. You cannot control society unless you can monitor it, right? So 5G has been the catalyst that, uh, that is allowing the connection to all of these various devices throughout the world to connect with each other and to form a unified network, a sensor network to see exactly what's going on in society. Who's doing what, where, where are they moving? What are they buying? How, what are they consuming? Um, what are they thinking now? That's even more dangerous. Um, but the 5G system today is so fast over 4G, especially. It's such an improvement, not only in outright speed of delivery of data, but also in what they call the latency factor, which is how long does it take to make a connection? Like when you first start the connection, ding, you hit the key, that first ping back, back and forth to establish the connection historically has been rather slow, anywhere from maybe uh, you know, 40 to 100 milliseconds. 5G pushes that down to like one or two milliseconds of, to connect. And then the data pipe that's established is about 50 times faster than, uh, than 4G was, for instance. So this has kind of been, 5G has kind of been the big quantum leap forward for the technocrat mind. Now they can do it. Now they can have virtually a real-time view of what's going on in society. You know, all this technology, I mean, it'll allow me to do so much. Faster downloads, remote surgery, driverless automobiles. It, it opens up our lives in a sense. But uh, at the same time, there are restrictions to our privacy, I suppose. I mean, maybe focus on, on how yes. our freedoms are actually being restricted. 
Exactly. It's important to understand there's one major difference with 5G over 4G, and that is that the spectrum of frequencies available is much broader than it was in, in 4G. As a result, 5G has been stratified. It, in other words, it has multiple channels, like on your television. You know, you, you turn your TV on, oh, there's the TV, but you maybe have 100 different channels you can access to get different types of content. Well, 5G allows for various channels or slices to be dedicated towards a particular application. So when 5G is established, cell phones is one thing, you know, the the, the audio uh, connection, you have the personal data that you download from your cell phone, that's all contained in the band, if you will, the bandwidth for the cell phone. But there are many other stratas as well the, for instance, the, 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 the Internet of Things frequency um, is different than your cell phone is. It uses a different layer. Police and government communications uses a different layer still. And uh, you have uh, self-driving cars uh, that are coming out now with, uh, with all of the complexity they have. They have a separate layer of 5G. So when we say 5G, it doesn't just mean 5G, 5G. There's, there's more to it, more to the story than that. Yes, the promise is to kind of pacify the people to get it installed. The promise is, well, you can download your video uh, in five seconds versus five minutes. Well, how important is that in the overall scheme of humanity? (laughs) I don't know. But people say, oh, that's wonderful. Of course I want it. I I want my videos right now. I don't want to wait five minutes. I want to get it as soon as I can. So there's been a universal acceptance amongst the public of 5G based on what it can do for them in in the phone area, right? but they don't realize, nor are they told, what these other slices of 5G are doing behind the scenes. This is the problem. I know that artificial intelligence has sort of slowly progressed as well. And that aspects of it could have an, I mean, in effect so well that they could possibly even predict what we will do before we do. Is that sort of some of the thinking around artificial intelligence? Yes, yes. This is, this is the combination um, of monitoring and surveillance along with prediction. It's been long, um, what I would say, desired to create predictive systems that would anticipate human behavior. Uh, why this is important is a little bit it's a little bit oblique, but I can explain it this way. If you were in the stock market, if you were playing the stock market, right? You had money invest, whatever, a trading account, and you had the ability somehow to see or forecast where prices would be 15 minutes from now. Very short term. But you could take whatever the price is right this second, you have your finger on the buy button or the sell button, whatever. 
And you could see into the future based on some algorithm, AI, whatever, you know, looking at all the graphs and charts, and you could predict accurately where that stock would be in 15 minutes. You would be a billionaire within about a year based on your predictive analysis, right? I mean, everybody wants, this is the holy grail of stock market trading. If you could just figure out the future, you could make a lot of money. To a technocrat, that's interested in the science of social engineering for the sake of controlling humanity, think how valuable it is to be able to predict the future, even if it's just a short-term future. It doesn't have to be five years out or 10 years out. What if, what if they could just predict the future for the next two hours, for instance? So you see police departments, for instance, are adopting the, the, the artificial intelligence with the 5G Internet of Things uh, mentality, trying to create predictive policing, right? This is what this is all about. They want to see if they can figure out where crime is going to occur before it occurs. <laughs> it's a little silly. I realized there was a movie, there was a series on TV. Minority Report. Person, well, that was one. But there was a series called... Um, person of interest. It was all, I mean, it was exactly what we're talking about here, where they were predicting what crime would take place. And then they had uh, an agent that would go out and try and prevent, you know, block that crime from taking place. And um, so the, the technocrat mind is, is, is really uh, steeped on developing AI software that will be predictive of behavior, whether it be personal behavior, economic behavior, supply chain behavior, you know, movement of ships and stuff like that, um, to predict economic, um, you know, forecasting, stuff like that. Um, to, to mere mortals like you and I, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're a genius AI programmer. <laughs> I missed the boat here. But for normal mortals who don't have any problem not predicting the future, you know, we just let it come. These people, the technocrat mind is given out completely to this concept of predictive analysis. And you'll see it everywhere in their writings, by the way. You know, I, I know of uh, uh, something called social credits, and apparently in China it's being used to essentially create a second class of individuals if they don't have a certain amount of points that's uh, visible from their social media activities, <laughs> they will find themselves like sort of sinking down and and, and basically saying things that goes against uh, you know, established uh, rules or, or what have you. And I, I, mean, I mean, I I don't know if if that sort of thing is going to enter into uh, United States and and the rest of the world or if maybe we'll try to use our influence the other way i mean what what we're, how is that gonna you know social credit system going to yes. pronounce itself yes this is here right now even in america and uh when you for instance when you go to buy a life insurance policy or a car insurance policy you don't know why they accept you or why they turn you down if you're turned down it's most likely because they rated you as being a poor risk 
and they've they've looked at your, perhaps all of your behavior these days. They look at your social media postings. They look at your financial history. They look at your family history, where you live. You know everything they can find out and suck off the internet. They have scoring algorithms that give you a, and this is all, all internal for insurance companies, but they give you an internal score that will rate you as being a worthy risk or not so worthy risk. And if you fall below a certain level, you're out. And they will never tell you that. They won't give you the heads up. Um, in China, where social credit scoring was really perfected, they're taking all of your behavior uh, and this surveilled and, and deep in mind out of social media and all other financial transactions and so on. <clears throat> they take all of that information, stuff it into an algorithm that assigns you a, a social credit score. I think I think it's a, a, a like zero to 700 or something like that. But if you're a good little citizen, and you tow the you know you tow the company line and you obey everything they tell you to do why you'll have a high score like maybe a 600 but if you're a troublemaker if you uh, break rules like jaywalking or if you don't pay a bill or if you associate with the wrong people who are troublemakers your score starts to go down and as your score goes down you are denied privileges in society that other people have whose score is high. So let's say you're a student and you're ready to go to university and you have a really high score. Well, you're going to get into the best university and the government probably will pay your tuition. But let's say your score is low because you associate with a bunch of troublemakers and maybe your parents are troublemakers, right? And so you've got maybe a 250 or a 200 score. You can't go to those schools. You won't be accepted. You'll have to go to these other schools or maybe you just won't be able to go to school at all because you're just too far down the scale. This is all done by algorithm. There's no, there's nobody at the top of that food chain with her finger on a button looking at you personally, right? Saying, "Oh, I don't like the way he's behaving. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, get him out." It's not the way it works. It's rule by algorithm. China now has one camera for every two people in their 1.2 billion population country. 600 million cameras. It's like, you think that'll do the job. They, they're monitoring everybody all the time. And it's all being fed into an artificial intelligence system to control the people. Yeah, I mean, I, we already starting to get some signs of it because right now there's a, a sort of a, in certain universities, like in, in Canada, even, uh, you ha find that uh, if you don't, haven't gotten the vaccination, against the, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, or the COVID, you, you're not essentially going to be able to go to class. I mean, that's actually a law right now. Okay? Yes. And so, I mean, that's uh, we're, we're seeing where you now maybe the pandemic uh, kind of plays into it as well. Uh, yes. Um, so I, I'm wondering, uh, maybe uh, this is, we'll have to close with this, but you know, as the 5G system continues on, where do you see this going? I mean, what, what will life be like in 10 years' time if there isn't a right. sufficient pushback by the people? The, the greater threat at this point 
uh, is 6G. <laughs> I hate to throw that in the mix here, but it's a natural progression at this point. 6G is going to bring in uh, the enablement of um, of what Facebook and, and Google and Amazon call augmented reality. Augmented reality. That means that um, you can overlay the data on top of what you perceive as being real right in front of your face. There are several different aspects to this, but uh, I will say this. Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is pouring I think $2 billion into what he calls the metaverse project where you will be able to wear the goggles, you know, the, uh, the augmented reality goggles that they make. And you will be able to step into the metaverse. That's an artificial world where you'd be able to move from application to application with your identity attached and act and behave and meet people and do things just like you do in reality, except it'll all be what they call the metaverse. This, this ought to bring up visions of the movie series, The Matrix. It's, this is it. It's going to be very dangerous, and I'll tell you why. Although people will love it, it is very addictive even now. The reason it's dangerous is because when you step into this world, the metaverse or augmented reality, your brain begins to be rewired in its ability to perceive reality truly. So it blends the artificial reality with actual reality, but it tricks your brain into perceiving things that may not be true at all. That means they can shape your view of reality. I'll tell you this, I mean, this internet of things, yes, it's all there, but eventually it's going to drill down to you directly and to try and change your view of reality. If they can do that, then they don't have to predict the future. They can create the future. It's a big shift in concept, just merely predicting the future to shaping the future. Yes, uh, digital dictatorship, as it were. You know, eat your heart, eat your heart out, Philip C. Dick. Um, Patrick, I, I want to thank you for this entertaining and enlightening uh, uh, tour down technocracy lane. Um, I, I want to thank you for uh, joining us, and uh, I uh, well, well, we should keep you tuned into your site, right? My pleasure. You know, anytime. This is uh, what I'm dedicated to studying, researching, and talking about. And I really do believe it, it is the most important uh, topic right now that we have in society to understand, identify, and understand what we're facing. Hmm. Patrick Wood, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You've been speaking to Patrick Wood. He is the uh, editor-in-chief of Technocracy.News. That's it for this edition of the Global Research News Hour. Next week, we will be examining the real reasons behind the latest war in Afghanistan and what the consequences will be for the country and the planet. 
Be sure to tune in seven days from now. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.